Antiques Roadshow is the name of a British and American TV show that I assume very few of you have ever seen. Kids, it is something like the most boring reality TV show that has ever existed. Uh, the TV show invites people from the public to bring in unique or antique items they may have laying around their home to be appraised, evaluated, and assessed by experts to see if those items might be valuable. So someone might bring in a unique painting that has been in their family for generations to see if it might be worth something. Now, I assume that most of the items that people bring into this show have very little value. But the reason that people watch this show is that a few people bring in stuff that is extraordinarily valuable. These are the ones that make it on TV. Uh, sometimes the people who bring in these items suspect that, that these things might have some value. That's why they come. Uh, but sometimes the people who, who bring in the, these items really have no idea of the true value of their antique. Uh, they did not know it, but they had a treasure hiding in plain sight for years and years. Uh, for example, uh, several years ago, one man brought in a painting that his great-grandparents had bought when they were young. It had just been hanging behind the door in their great-grandparents' home for years and years. Well, it turns out that that artist that painted that painting went on to be world famous, and the painting was worth millions of dirhams. But they had no idea. This treasure hanging in plain sight behind their door for years and years with no idea of the true value. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. It can be in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 43. You can also find that text printed in the back of your bulletins. Well, throughout Luke's gospel, it seems as if Jesus has been hiding in plain sight. Despite all that Jesus has taught, despite all that he has done, most people still did not grasp who he was or what he came to do. And in our text, we even find that the 12 disciples still do not fully grasp Jesus' mission on earth. It was hidden from them. The truth that we are confronted with in these verses this morning is that we need to be given spiritual eyes. Eyes of faith to truly see and comprehend the person, the work, and the majesty of Jesus Christ. To see him as our true treasure. To find him as our highest good. Our darkened hearts must be illuminated with the light of Christ. And this is not something that we can do on our own. It is a work of God. Friends, I wonder if Jesus may have been hiding in plain sight for some of you. Maybe you've been around the church for most of your life. Maybe you have heard the gospel preached over and over and over again. But you've never truly grasped the beauty and the glory of Jesus. But friends, if that is you this morning, my prayer is that God would open your eyes by his spirit and through his word. So please follow along as I read, starting in verse 31 of Luke chapter 18. Then he, being Jesus, took the twelve aside and told them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. 
Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front told him to keep quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he came closer, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has saved you. Instantly he could see, and he began to follow him, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes to the truths of the gospel this morning. Father, we pray for your spirit to be at work among us, illuminating the truths of scripture. Father, that your spirit would be at work giving us a desire to know your word more and to know you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last few weeks in our study of Luke, we have found Jesus attacking our sinful self-reliance and calling us to to trust in him alone. If you picture your self-reliance as something like a, a stool with three legs, Jesus has been busy kicking out those legs one by one until the stool of your self-reliance collapses. So in the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, he kicked out one leg of the stool by warning those who trusted in their own righteousness for salvation. It is not our own righteousness and goodness that saves us. And Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler that we studied last week Jesus taught that we must rely on him and treasure him more than money or more than any other thing. We must be willing to give up everything to follow him. Jesus kicked out the second leg of our self-reliance and left the stool of our self-reliance in a precarious state, wobbling on just one leg. And this week he kicks out the last leg in order to collapse our faith in our own self-sufficiency. Well, that leg is our trust in our own wisdom. We see this week that we are not saved by our own wisdom any more than we are saved by our own righteousness or our own riches. And so I have two points to help us consider that idea this morning. The first, eyes closed. It'll be verses 31 through 34. The second, eyes open. That'll be verses 35 through 43. So first, we're going to look at this idea of eyes closed. And so after Jesus had his conversation with the rich young ruler that we studied last week, he took his 12 disciples aside and reminded them of their ongoing journey to Jerusalem. And more importantly, Jesus's own journey to the cross. That is why he was going to Jerusalem. However, we see in the text that the disciples did not fully grasp the reason why they were going to Jerusalem. They had not come to grips with the fact that Jesus was going to suffer and die. But though these things were hidden from the disciples, they were not hidden from Jesus. In fact, this is the third clear prediction of his death that Jesus has made in Luke's gospel. Jesus was not surprised by his arrest, by his torture, by his death, by his burial, or by his resurrection. It was not as if Jesus was somehow caught off guard when he arrived in Jerusalem and was arrested, or that Satan somehow got the better of Jesus. 
No, Jesus' crucifixion, his death for sinners, was the eternal plan of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. And Jesus even says in verse 31 of our own text that he was going to Jerusalem so that everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man, that is Jesus, will be accomplished. Now, the Old Testament, this is what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about everything written through the prophets. But the Old Testament spoke of a Savior, a Messiah, who would suffer for his people. Well, to give just two examples, if you remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God curses the serpent for his role in deceiving Adam and Eve and for the fall, God tells this to the serpent. He, son of Eve, will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Satan will be crushed, and he's going to inflict a little damage along the way. Isaiah 53 prophesied of a servant who would be pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, who would be cut off from the land of the living. Uh, it was written something like 700 years before the coming of Jesus, that prophecy in Genesis 3, well before that. And so the Old Testament made the reality of the suffering Savior clear for those who had eyes to see. This is exactly what Jesus said he came to accomplish. He would be arrested, handed over to the Romans, mocked, insulted, flogged, spit on, and brutally murdered, murdered on the cross for the sins of his people. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus endured for your sin. That is the punishment that you deserved. Jesus was mocked, insulted, spit on, flogged and brutally murdered on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Although the Old Testament presented the reality of a, of a suffering Savior for those who had eyes to see, most people missed it. As we've seen over and over and over again in our study through Luke, most were looking for something different. They were looking for a conquering hero who would come and conquer their enemies particularly the, the Roman Empire who was ruling Israel at the time, they missed the fact that what they needed most of all was not deliverance from tyranny, not deliverance from the oppression of Rome. What they needed most of all was deliverance from the tyranny and oppression of their own sin. But such is the blindness and the wickedness and the vileness of human sin that Jesus the king of glory would soon be mocked and beaten and killed by those he came to save. Both Jews and Gentiles would play a part, as we see in our text. It was the Jewish people who would hand Jesus over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be put to death. All of humanity bears responsibility. Friends, you and I bear responsibility. But the Israelites handed Jesus over to be killed, though they were the very ones who had the Old Testament scriptures. They were the very ones who had all these things that had been written down by the prophets. Friends, how could this be? It's because they needed eyes of faith. They needed the blind eyes of their hearts to be opened. 
And friends, it takes a supernatural work of God to open blind eyes. If you doubt this, just look at verse 34 for a moment. Jesus told the disciples in very clear and plain language what was about to happen to him. And yet, the disciples understood none of these things. Now, after living in the UAE for a little more than two years now, I have come to accept the fact that I will often be misunderstood. One of the joys of heaven will be that we will all understand one another perfectly. Not so here in the UAE. Just about every week I I find myself trying to explain something to someone, thinking I am being abundantly clear, only to find out that the other person did not understand at all what I was actually trying to say. Friends, this was the disciples. I'm sure they understood the individual words that Jesus was saying, but they didn't grasp the meaning. They didn't fully grasp what Jesus was trying to communicate. In fact, they understood none of these things. As one scholar put it, like the other Israelites of the day, the idea of a suffering Messiah was too difficult to accept, and they did not understand why the Messiah had to die. They just couldn't get their heads around the idea of a a suffering Savior. It was too revolutionary, too surprising, too uh, too far away from that which they were expecting and that which they were looking for. Now, the disciples had some level of faith in Jesus. That's clear. In fact, back in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, Peter himself confessed that he believed Jesus to be the Messiah. God says, or Jesus said, it was God himself who revealed this to him. However, Peter and the other disciples still did not yet have the indwelling spirit. They were still growing in their faith and their understanding, and they did not fully comprehend Jesus' mission. And they would not understand until after Jesus rose again. But verse 34 says more than simply the disciples did not understand. Luke writes that the meaning of the saying was hidden from them. And now look, I believe the disciples were responsible for their lack of understanding. It was their own misconceptions about the Messiah and even their own sin, their own sinful hearts that kept them from full understanding. Jesus would rebuke them for their lack of understanding after he rose again. See that in Luke 24. Yet, though that is true, you must not miss God's sovereignty. He sovereignly kept them from understanding. Or to put it another way, he chose not to fully open their blind eyes to give them a full understanding of that which would take place in Jerusalem. But what we learn in these verses is that it is a supernatural work of God to open blind eyes. Friends, this is Jesus kicking out that third leg from under your stool of self-reliance. If you are here and you are a Christian, you did not find God or believe because you were smarter or more discerning or more open to the truth than other people. You did not understand because of your great wisdom. It was a supernatural work of God. You needed your dead heart to be made alive. You needed your blind eyes to be opened. God must open 
our blind eyes and illuminate the dark recesses of our heart that are so lost in sin before we understand and before we believe. Dr. Bart Ehrman, Dr. Bart Ehrman is a well-known professor of religion at a university in the United States. In fact, he may be America's most widely read scholar of early Christianity and the New Testament. He has devoted his life to the study of the Bible, to the study of Christianity. Nevertheless, this is how he describes his own religious beliefs. I consider myself both an atheist and an agnostic, because I do not really know if there is a superior being in the universe, but I do not believe there is. Well, the sad reality is that Dr. Ehrman is far from alone among Bible scholars in the leading secular universities, particularly those in the West. So many, in fact, perhaps the majority, do not believe that the Bible they have devoted their lives to studying. They do not have any faith in the Jesus revealed in those scriptures. Jesus is hiding in plain sight. The truth, it's there in front of them. But they do not see it. Again, how, how can this be? How can it be that Dr. Ehrman and other biblical scholars do not fully understand and do not believe? They've devoted their lives to the study of the scriptures and Christianity. Friends, how is it that people could come to church their whole lives and yet never believe the truths that they hear proclaimed week after week? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person... It is the sinful person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, that there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. A Christian, the corruption and depravity of your sin was so great that you would have never turned to God on your own. There is no one, not one person, who seeks God on their own. Sin has so darkened our understanding and hardened us toward the things of God that it takes a supernatural work of the Spirit to open eyes that are blind to the truth of the gospel. Christian, you were not saved by your own wisdom. You were not saved by your own insight. Left to yourself, you would have been no different than the Israelites who handed Jesus over to be crucified. In fact, it was your sin that put him there. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We do not seek God on our own. It is God who draws us. We do not begin seeking God until he begins drawing us. Until he begins to give us spiritual sight. Again, this work of opening blind eyes is called illumination. And friends, illumination is a work of God's spirit from first to last. This is how the theologian J.I. Packer describes the work of illumination. The work of the Spirit in imparting spiritual knowledge is called illumination or enlightening. It is not 
a giving of new revelation, but a work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is there before us in the biblical text as heard and read and as explained by teachers and writers. Sin in our mental and moral system clouds our minds and will so that we miss and resist the force of Scripture. God seems to us remote to the point of unreality. And in the face of God's truth, we are dull and apathetic. The Spirit, however, opens and unveils our minds and attunes our hearts so that we understand. As by inspiration he provided Scripture truth for us, so now by illumination he interprets it to us. Illumination is thus the applying of God's revealed truth to our hearts so that we grasp as reality for ourselves what the sacred text sets forth. Friends, this work of illumination begins before conversion as God begins opening the eyes of those he saves to the truths about Jesus, to the truths of his revealed word. But illumination is also a lifelong ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is he who helps us to grow in our understanding. He who strengthens our faith. He who helps us to to see God, to see Jesus ever more clearly and fully. Church, this is why you should always pray when you read God's word. Pray that the Spirit would help you understand what you are reading. That he would convict you of sin. And that he would help you uh, apply what you are reading. Church, this is why you should always pray before coming to church. Pray that the Spirit would help you understand what you are hearing. That he would convict you of sin. That he would help you apply what you are hearing to your life. Church, this is why you should pray before you share your faith. It's not your own wisdom or insight or reasoning skills that are going to bring someone into the kingdom of God. Pray that God would open blind eyes by his Spirit. Do not rely on your wisdom or your insight, or your skills and reasoning or deduction. Church, if if you are here early enough, you may notice that uh, some of those who are participating in the service pray right over there just before the start of the service. Friends, we gather there to pray that God's Spirit would be at work among us in the service. We are praying that God's Spirit would work through the word that is sung and read and prayed and preached. We pray because we believe the Spirit of God works through the Word of God, that which God has revealed about Himself, opening blind eyes to the truths of the Gospel and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Friends, this supernatural work of God in opening blind eyes is powerfully illustrated in Jesus' healing of the blind man in our text. And that takes us to the second point of the sermon, Eyes Opened. Uh, Look again with me at verse 35. As he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front told him to keep quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he came closer, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. 
Your faith has saved you. Instantly he could see, and he began to follow him, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Friends, in these verses, Jesus gives a man physical sight. But you need to see that Jesus performed this miracle for a reason. Luke included it in his gospel for a reason. Certainly Jesus performed this miracle as an act of compassion for this man. But ultimately, Jesus gave this man physical sight to confirm the fact that he is the one who gives spiritual sight. Friends, miracles are not just random acts of kindness, but something of many parables that point us to the cross. Professor Lee Irons puts it this way. He says this about Jesus' miracles. Each miracle points to Christ's atoning death and resurrection. Each healing is a sign of the ultimate healing, salvation, that he will accomplish on the cross. The miracles of Jesus point us to the fulfillment of salvation via the atoning death and resurrection of Christ. So how can we derive spiritual benefit from the miracle stories? By seeing ourselves in the text. First, we see our own desperate and miserable condition when we see the sick, the lame, the mute, and those oppressed by demons. Second, we identify with the poor and needy as they come to Jesus in faith, crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And third, we receive afresh the assurance of the pardon of all our sins when we hear the words of Jesus. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Friends, in other words, though you may not be physically blind, you should see yourself in this blind man. His physical blindness should remind you of your spiritual blindness. In his cry for mercy, you should see your own need to cry for mercy. His healing should remind you of the fact that Jesus came to suffer and die and be raised again that you might receive healing from your sin and that you might receive your spiritual sight. And with that in mind, let's take a closer look at this encounter between Jesus and this blind man. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, he was getting very near to Jerusalem, he encountered a blind man on the side of the road begging. Now this blind man was on the bottom rung of the social ladder, from the wrong caste, among the outcasts. The legs on his stool of self-reliance had been knocked away long, long ago. Now, many of the people at that time wrongly believed that things like blindness and disease were the result of a person's sin, something of God's judgment on them. Well, this was a wrong belief, but from the perspective of this blind man, there went the hope of trusting in, him, in his own righteousness for salvation. Now, he had none of the wealth of the rich young ruler. He could not trust in his riches. He had to beg. And as a blind man, he likely had little to no education, no social status, no wisdom to stand on. The legs on his stool of self-reliance had been knocked away long ago. He had nothing. He was desperate and humble, and so when he heard that Jesus was passing by, he loudly cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Friends, what you need to understand is that to call Jesus the son of David was to express a profound faith in Jesus. 
Now remember those words that Atabebe read for us from 2 Samuel a bit earlier in the service? God told King David, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Friends, because of that promise, the Jewish people rightly understood that the Messiah would come from the line of David, that he would be a king. So the blind man was in effect saying, I believe that everything that was written in the prophets about the Son of Man was talking about you, Jesus. I believe you are this promised Son of David, the one whose throne will be established forever. I believe you are the Messiah. There was a lot captured in that short little phrase, son of David. Friends, this blind beggar could not see. He could not read the scriptures. He could not have been an eyewitness to any of Jesus' miracles up to this point. And yet, the reality is that he had a deeper understanding than so many others. He saw far more clearly than so many whose physical eyes worked just fine. This man had spiritual sight before he ever had physical sight. He cried out for mercy because God had been at work in his heart. Well, this blind beggar brings to mind the words that Jesus shared with Doubting Thomas, his, his disciple who refused to believe that he had been raised from the dead until he saw the nail holes in Jesus' hands. Friends, when Jesus did finally appear to Thomas, this is what he said to him. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. The church, have you ever thought or said, I wish God would just give me a sign that he is real? If only I could have seen one of his miracles or he would do a, an amazing miracle for me. Well, then I would believe. Then my faith would be stronger. If only he would speak to me directly in an audible voice, not just through the scriptures. Then I would understand. Then I would obey and follow. Oh, friends, first, that's just not true. Look back at verse 34, at the disciples' lack of understanding. Those who had been with Jesus the most, despite all that they had seen and heard, they understood none of these things. But Christian, the good news is that God has given you everything you need to follow him in faith. He has given you his word. He has given you his full and final revelation. And he has given you his spirit. You have far more revelation than the disciples had at this point. You have no confusion about what Jesus meant when he predicted his death. You know how the story in Jerusalem ends. Christian, God has given you his full and final revelation in his word. He has given you his spirit. You do not need anything else. And therefore, Jesus calls you to walk by faith and not by sight. He simply calls you to walk in the faith that he has supplied by the power of the Spirit that he has also supplied. He calls you to walk in the faith that he has supplied to you by the power of the Spirit that he has also supplied to you. Brothers and sisters, do not look for more than what God has provided. Instead, depend on the Spirit by devoting yourself to His Word and prayer. This is how believers 
rely on the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Well, this blind beggar demonstrated the depths of his faith, not by just calling Jesus son of David, but also by continually crying out for mercy, even when others tried to stop him. I like the persistent widow from the beginning of Luke chapter 18. This man could not be silenced. Like the tax collector, he did not care what others thought about him. He was willing to bear any shame. He just wanted Jesus, and he just wanted Jesus' mercy. And just like Jesus welcomed the children to come to him, Jesus welcomed this poor, blind, miserable beggar to come to him. In fact, he did more than that. He commanded that others bring this man to him. Because of this blind man's humility, he was exalted in the presence of all. Out of the abundance of his compassion, Jesus took time to speak to this man personally. To give him the attention that so many others had failed to give him. Jesus knew what this man wanted and needed. But out of compassion, he took time to ask this man anyway. And what was the man's reply? He wanted to see. My friends, that was a prayer of faith. If you are here and and not a Christian, is that the desire of your own heart? Do you want to see? Do you want to see Jesus for who he is? Do you want to know him? To understand more? Friends, if so, ask God in faith to give you spiritual sight. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart. Friends, that is a prayer that he will not refuse. If you are here and you are a Christian, is that the desire of your heart? Do you want to see Jesus more clearly? I hope so. Friends, if so, turn to God's word. Ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Ask God to give you eyes to see your own sin and turn to God in repentance and faith. And friends, that is a prayer that your heavenly Father will not refuse. Friends, Jesus did not refuse this man. He told him to receive his sight And instantly, this man could see. But that was not all. As one scholar put it, the blind man was healed of his blindness. But at the same time, he was saved spiritually. Just look at what Jesus told him in verse 42. Your faith has saved you. Friends, he was not just given physical sight. He was given spiritual sight. He was given a new heart. Eyes to see. This poor, blind, miserable beggar, the one who was at the bottom of society, the one whom the more respectable members of the city tried to silence, the one who had nothing to offer. Well, he was saved while the respectable Pharisee from earlier in Luke 18, who trusted in his own righteousness, was not. This poor beggar was saved while the rich young ruler who had everything the world could offer was not. Well, turn with me for a moment in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Just go a little bit to the right in your Bible. A little bit to the right in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. I want to read these words to you from the Apostle Paul. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God, why does God save people like this poor blind beggar? But not the Pharisee? And not the rich young ruler? Why does God save this poor blind beggar and not the esteemed scholar, Dr. Bart Ehrman? Friends, he does it to shame the strong. He does it to shame the wise. He does it so that he might receive all the glory. Kids, you do not have to be great and mighty to come to Jesus. You do not have to be overflowing with worldly wisdom to come to Jesus. And God delights to save the weak. And friends, if you are here not a Christian, do not let your pride keep you from seeing Jesus. That was the problem for the Pharisee. That was the problem for the rich young ruler. That is the problem for Dr. Bart Ehrman. Friends, God has revealed himself plainly for all to see. But you must cast off your self-reliance. You must stop trusting in your own righteousness, your own possessions, your own wisdom, or any other thing that you could fill in those blanks. You must trust in Christ alone. But friends, pray that God would give you eyes to see. And church, notice from those verses we just read from 1 Corinthians that God did not save you because you had something to offer. Because you were wise, or you were powerful, or you were from the right caste, or you were great. No, he saved you that he might be glorified. Notice what Paul writes in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 1. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My friends, your salvation is not an occasion for proud boasting. 
that you've understood so much more clearly than your neighbors, uh, than you've understood so much more clearly than those from the majority religion of this place. No, your salvation is not an occasion for proud boasting, but humble praise. Is that not what this poor blind beggar did? When he was saved and given his sight, he made no boast. He began following Jesus and glorifying God. I mean, what boast could this man have made? Brothers and sisters, this is the reason you were given spiritual sight. It is so that you might glorify God. And so, friends, until Jesus comes, glorify him by walking by faith and not by sight. Endure in obedience. Turn to his word. Rely on his spirit in prayer. Set your eyes and minds on things above and not on the things of this earth. Trust in his promises of eternal life and eternal reward. For his promise of sustaining you by his grace in the trials and tribulations of this world. Trust that your faith will one day be turned to sight. But for now, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Let's pray.